Hello, and welcome to the podcast of the How discussion series, Burning Futures on Ecologies of Existence, the series on ecological questions and their intersections with political, economical, and cultural dimensions. The second edition of the series had the title, Fossil Economies, Degrowth Economies, and focused on the dependency of capitalist production on fossil fuels and our belief in endless economic growth. Why are we so dependent on fossils? What roles do they play in our growth-centered economies? Can there be green, ecologically sustainable growth? And finally, is it too late to introduce a transformation to prevent climate catastrophe? The invited experts were Andreas Malm, Associate Senior Lecturer in Human Ecology at Lund University, Sweden, author of the books Fossil Capital, The Progress of the Storm, Nature and Society in a Warming World, Andrea Feta, co-author of Degrowth Postvoxtum, An Introduction, Junius, 2019. Transformation researcher, journalist, and spokeswoman of the NGO think tank Konzeptwerk Neue Ökonomie, as well as Tatsio Müller, political scientist, climate justice activist, and consultant for climate justice and energy democracy at the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation in Berlin. So now, Listen to the live recording of this second edition of Burning Futures on Ecologies of Existence. Welcome, good evening, in the name of How Hebel am Ufa, to the second edition of our discursive series Burning Futures on Ecologies of Existence, a series um, that focuses on the ecological and its intersections with uh, economical, political, and cultural dimensions. Uh, important impulse for us was Felix Gattari's essay, Three Ecologies from 89, where he uh, discusses that there is a close relationship between questions of subjectivity, social relationships, and the natural world, and that nothing is gained by not considering them together. And um, tonight, we want to look at the intersection of the usage of natural resources with economical practices in historical and current capitalism. Last edition of the series, we had the title Facing Extinction, and uh, we discussed whether it is too little, too late to prevent uh, climate catastrophe. And we also uh, posed the questions, whose extinction we're actually talking about? Whose end are we talking about? Is it the end of the world? Is it the end of humankind? Is it the end of the people in the global south, of the people in the coasts, of the poor people, um, of the variety of non-human species? Uh, and we also made clear that what clearly has to end is the belief in our current way of life and maybe also production. So today we will zoom in and we will concentrate on the dependency of our current way of life 
to fossil fuels, as well as to our belief in endless economical growth, which results actually in the accumulation of carbon in the atmosphere, resulting finally in global warming. Yeah, welcome also from my side. Before we start, we would like to show you a picture. It actually has become quite iconic and it visualizes the data of a group of environmental scientists around um, a man called Will Steffens. And it was published in 2011 and the title is The Trajectory of the Anthropocene, The Great Acceleration. So you see on the left side, the socioeconomic trends and on the right side, the earth systems trends. So left side, society, if you will, right side, nature. And then you have those graphs and they start around 1750 until 2010. And you can see that, for example, in population, um, real GDP, so wealth or uh, energy use, there's like a slow acceleration already happening around 1800 but then this dotted line in the middle is 1950 and then we see really an exponential growth of all those things so apparently um, 1800 and 1950 are quite important dates in order to understand the situation that we're in now because uh, it starts around 1800 and then it kind of Yeah, explodes around 1950 until the present day. And we all know that environmental concerns have been widely discussed also in um, institutional politics since at least 50 years, but still the tendency is, is clearly uh, going upwards in most um, of the cases. So we're now going to introduce you to our speakers. We're very happy Andreas Malm is here with us. Andreas is someone who has been working on the dependency of fossil fuel energy and capitalism. He teaches human ecology at Lund University and is the author of the widely read book Fossil Capital, The Rise of Steam Power and the Roots of Global Warming, as well as um, of the last book, The Progress of This Storm, Nature and Society in a Warming World. And in 2020, he also will publish the new book, which is called How to blow up a pipeline, learning to fight in a world on fire, as well as the book White Skin, Black Fuel on the Danger of Fossil Fascism, written together with the Zetkin Collective. We also welcome Andrea, which is our second uh, speaker, Andrea Vetter. I'm also very happy she made it today. She is the co-author of Degrowth Postwachstum, an introduction of Junius Verlag. So Andrea is a transformation researcher, as she says, a journalist and uh, a spokeswoman of the NGO Konzeptwerk Neue Ökonomie, which is uh, a kind of a social think tank on ecological and economical questions. Uh, she works between theory and activism. She also holds a PhD, but she also is the editor of the magazine Enkeltauglich Leben, Oya, and the co-designer of Haus des Wandels in Brandenburg. And our last speaker, last but not least, is Dagio. Dagio Müller is a well-known activist. He's a political scientist, a climate justice activist and a translator. He's a consultant for climate justice and energy democracy at the Institute for Social Analysis of the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation in Berlin. And there he researches strategies of transformation within social movements. 
So Andreas, if you want to start, please. Okay, so um, we're here for Burning Futures, and it really is burning already in the present. You can just look at Australia. And the questions we have to ponder are very many and very big. I am normally a history nerd, and um, I'm happy to talk about matters of history in the discussion, but since I have 15 minutes only, I will focus my initial comments on two issues. The accumulation of fossil capital as it's proceeding right now, and the problem of despair. When everything seems to be going up in flames like this, is it time, as some argue, to learn to die? Some years back, when he was still the CEO of ExxonMobil, Rex Tillerson said, my philosophy is to make money. If I can drill and make money, then that's what I want to do. And that was a rather admirable summary of the ethos of fossil capital. If I can make money from digging up and burning fossil fuels, then that's what I want to do, and after me, the inferno. This is the logic that rules our planet. Capital is quantitative in nature. It recognizes no end point. It converts the profit from the first circuit into more production in the next Moving on relentlessly, it resumes production on a larger scale and on a larger scale again in an ever-widening spiral of accumulation. And in the department where Rex Tillerson is active, this means extracting more and more fossil fuels and making money out of them and throwing the money back into further extraction and more money can always be made and so the process has no end to it. But now it so happens that it must come to an end. This accumulation doesn't have to wind down or decelerate it has to be terminated completely. The core of fossil capital, the business of making money from the production of fossil fuels, must be taken out and buried once and for all, and the coal and the oil and the gas left under the ground, or else this planet won't hold space for human life. And everybody, except for the climate denialists, whom I will bracket for the moment, knows this. Quote, everybody says this, everybody admits this, everybody has decided it is so, yet nothing is being done. End of the quote from Lenin, writing in an essay called The Impending Catastrophe and How to Combat It. What does this look like on the ground? If you want to get an overview of what's happening in the actually existing capitalist world economy, a good place to start is the annual reports on energy investment published by the International Energy Agency, or IEA. Now, you probably remember the extremely hot and burning summer we had in this part of the world two years ago. At the height of that heat wave, IEA published the annual report for 2018, which revealed that more capital flowed into fossil fuels worldwide. Not only did investments continue, but their share relative to renewable energy expanded, so that 59% of all capital streaming into the production of energy now ended up in oil and gas and coal. This deep into global heating... With the world catching fire from the Arctic to California, it would have been irrational to operate any facilities for burning fossil fuels. It would have been even more irrational to build new ones. It would have been the height of irrationality to increase the rate of investment. But what could be said about a scenario where that rate knocked out parallel investments in renewable energy? Enjoying halcyon days, the IEE reported oil and gas companies were responsible for the greatest boom. They were awash in money. No less than 94% of global energy investment was financed, quote, from capital incorporated into a company's balance sheet or from private individuals' own assets, end quote. That is, from profits already made, the cycle of capital accumulation. 
Now, after the summer of 2018 had burned through Sweden with the worst wildfires we've ever seen there, Greta Thunberg went to our parliament and began her school strike, and you know the rest of the story. Since then, we've had the greatest surge of popular mobilizations around climate so far. And what has happened in the field of energy investment? In the most recent report from 2019, the IEA describes the persistence of business as usual in new excruciating detail. Two-thirds of capital placed in projects for generating energy still go to oil and gas and coal. That is to additional facilities for extracting and combusting such fuels on top of all that already spans the globe. As against less than one-third to wind and sun, whose share continues to edge downwards. And the agency sees glittering treasures ahead. ExxonMobil, for example, expects a profit in excess of 30% from its novel huge deep water fields off the coast of Brazil and Guyana. The financial picture for this line of business is bright. Nowhere on the horizon of ongoing capital accumulation can a transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy be cited, despite the latter now being consistently cheaper per unit of energy. In this latest report, the IEA has the tact to notice, quote, a growing mismatch between current trends and the paths to meeting the goals of maximum 1.5 degree or 2 degrees global warming, end quote. So the capitalist world economy not only operates in fundamental disconnect from the sense and science of a planet on fire, not to speak of all aspirations to cool this planet down, the disconnect is widening. And we can put this in simpler terms. To say that the fire alarm has fallen on the deaf ears of the ruling classes of this world would be an understatement. If these classes ever had any senses, they have lost them all. They are not perturbed by the smell from the blazing trees. They do not worry at the sight of islands sinking. They do not run from the roar of the approaching hurricanes. Their fingers never need to touch the stalks from withered harvests. Their mouths do not become sticky and dry after a day with nothing to drink. To appeal to their reason and common sense would evidently be most futile. The commitment to the endless accumulation of capital wins out every time. After the past decades, there can be no doubt that the ruling classes are constitutionally incapable of responding to the catastrophe in any other way than by expediting it. Of their own accord, under their inner compulsion, they can do nothing but burn their way to the end. And on it goes. In the past few months, newspapers like The Guardian and New York Times have revealed just how much fossil capital prepares to burn. The world's 50 largest oil companies are now poised to flood markets with more of the fuel, most aggressively Shell and ExxonMobil, which plan for production to increase by 38 and 35% respectively in this decade alone. BP foresees a rise of 20%, total of 12 the world's largest coal exporter, Australia, continues to prepare new mines, notably the giant Adani mine in Queensland, which is in turn topped by a four times larger mine another company wants to build in that country. And the globe is wrapped in schemes of this kind. Here in Germany, as I just learned, you have a new coal-fired power plant. A new coal-fired power plant, Datteln 4, slated to start commercial operations this summer. How can capitalists go on like this? One recent study on coal rights, I quote, current investments are an indication that investors do not believe in future climate policy or that they are confident in their own lobbying power, end quote. They still feel that they own the world. Investments of this size 
are normally subject to risks and sensitive to the anticipated policy context. And given the money involved, it would be imprudent to undertake them if the deep water fields or the coal mines were to be closed tomorrow or even 10 years from now. But these capitalists do not worry. They do not see any wrecking balls coming their way. They think they have nothing to fear. Now, our immediate task, our immediate task is to make them fear. Not for their lives, but for their money. How do we make them fear? Well, to stick in a little bit more of self-promotion here, I have this little book coming out, as you heard, called How to Blow Up a Pipeline, Learning to Fight in a World on Fire, where I discuss tactics for instilling fear in the capitalists burning our future. And it's from this book that I will take the following comments, because there is an alternative response to the apparently absolute intractability of business as usual. And that is to give up on humanity and the planet. And this position has its exponents, and one of the most eloquent is Roy Scranton, whom I will take as a representative of this line. He has written a book called Learning to Die in the Anthropocene, followed by We're Doomed, Now What? And he's adamant that, I quote him here, we're fucked. It's too late to stop apocalyptic global warming. We have passed the point where we could have done anything about it. We are already over the cliff, and now stare into the chasm of endless, depthless, unassuageable human suffering. It ends in disaster no matter what. All that is left is learning to die. The exact identity of the entity that needs to learn to die is somewhat doubtful. Scranton sort of slides between the individual civilization, capitalist civilization, and the human species. A symptomatic conflation. It's hard for him to distinguish between these scales. But what is never in doubt is the futility of resistance. Scranton's writings are pervaded by a disdain for collective action. There is no way a movement can ever get its hands on fossil fuels. Quote, Only the deluded and naive could maintain that nonviolent protest politics is much more than ritualized wishful thinking. End quote. So what else should be done? Reconsider the nonviolence? No. We should cross our legs in a lotus position and think. On the way down, Buddhist meditation can give us peace of mind. I quote again. If the bad news we must confront is that we're all going to die, then the wisdom that might help us deal with that news arises from the realization that it was going to happen anyway. So if the eye can only understand that it was already dying, already dead, then it can crash into the bottom with equanimity. It won't hurt much. Activists have so far tried to save the world. The point, however, for Scranton is to accept its end. The highest stage of consciousness is willing our fate, and action blocks the way to such serenity. Other intellectuals have recently come to similar conclusions. From his pulpit in uh, The New Yorker, notable American novelist Jonathan Franzen holds forth on how unwise it is to attempt to have climate change abated. Like Scranton, he believes that planetary overheating is a done deal. Evidence of this destiny is the circumstance that, quote, no head of state has ever made a commitment to leaving any carbon in the ground, end quote. Before the 1790s, no head of a state had ever made a commitment to freeing African slaves. In July 1791, just before the Haitian Revolution, someone of this disposition could have argued that after the past three centuries, eternal slavery is a done deal. Thankfully, the choice was made to take a different path. Franzen admits that the lack of progress so far admits of two options. You can feel ever more enraged by the world's inactions, 
or you can accept that disaster is coming, and he would not advise the rage. We can call this position climate fatalism. It has other proponents. I don't have time to go into them here. What unites them is a reification of despair. Now, despair is an eminently sensible, emotional response to this crisis. Indeed, someone who does not feel it every now and then is probably a numb and cold person, but it is unserviceable as a foundation for a politics in this crisis. One climate philosopher, Catriona McKinnon, has written a delightful essay called Against Despair, which I recommend to everyone who grapples with these feelings, as I think we all do. Some climate fatalists deny that it would be logically and technically possible to cut emissions to zero and then begin the work of repair and regeneration. But more common is the argument that this just won't happen because of the way the world is. Scranton at one point acknowledges that it could be accomplished if we manage to, quote, radically reorient all human economic and social production, a task that is scarcely imaginable, much less feasible. It would demand centralized control of key economic sectors, massive state investment in carbon capture and sequestration, and global coordination on a scale never seen before, end quote. A scenario that can perhaps be conjured up in some theoretical hemisphere of the mind, but not promoted or implemented in the real world because the forces stacked against it are so stupefyingly strong. So despair about the climate is here based on a judgment of extreme improbability, hypostasized into impossibility. But that procedure is fundamentally anti-political. If someone seeks to affect the ways of the world by acting in one way rather than another, it must be because she holds an outcome to be desirable and wants to contribute to its realization. If she merely wished to confirm the most probable outcome on account of its high probability, she would have no reason to act at all. Her behavior would have no normative substance. It would have no strategic charge. She would simply be floating, and she would be floating just for the sake of it. To act politically is to reject probability assessment as a ground for action, since it cannot, by definition, inspire any action. And this applies to men like Scranton and Franzen, too. By their writings, they seek to influence others to do one thing over another, else they would keep their mouths shut. If Scranton believed that people would take up the lotus position and the fall down the chasm with the same probability of a bird spreading its wings, his recommendations would be redundant. Climate fatalism is a performative contradiction. It does not passively reflect a certain distribution of probabilities, but actively affirms it. Or, with McKinnon, it may become a self-fulfilling prophecy. That which is repeatedly asserted to be impossible can thereby become impossible. The more people who tell us that a radical reorientation is scarcely imaginable, the less imaginable it will be. And imagination really is a pivotal faculty here. The climate crisis unfolds through a series of interlocked absurdities. Not only is it easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism, not only is it easier to imagine the deliberate large-scale intervention in the climate system, geoengineering, than in the economic system, it is also easier, at least for some, to imagine learning to die than learning to fight. Easier to reconcile oneself to the end of everything one holds dear than to consider some militant resistance. Climate fatalism does all in its power to confirm these paralyzing absurdities. But what if it's now too late? 
This is the putatively scientific case for climate fatalism. Because so much has already been burned, leaving fossil fuels in the ground now would make too little difference to justify the Herculean effort involved. Problem is that this case has no basis in the science. I quote, It is not a question of whether we can limit warming, but whether we choose to do so. That's a standard phrase from the peer-reviewed literature on the state of the climate right now. Or, and I hear a quote from a recent paper in Nature, the precise level of future warming depends largely on infrastructure that has not yet been built, end quote. It could be blocked, logically speaking. If I say from this stage that I have an automatic rifle in my bag over here, that I will pick up in five minutes to gun you all down, you could, in principle, storm the stage and disarm me. Investments in fossil fuels are like that. They burn the future because they sink capital into infrastructure for extracting oil and coal and gas, but there is nothing that makes it axiomatically or technically impossible to disarm that infrastructure. It could be taken offline if we were to break the apathy and storm the stage, so to speak. Now, given the passivity of most of the audience so far, the likelihood of this happening might be low, but that is entirely beside the point when you weigh your options. No one knows exactly how this crisis will end. No scientist, no activist, no novelist, no modeler or soothsayer knows it because too many variables of human action determine the outcome. If collectives throw themselves on the stage with sufficient force, there could be other futures. Within these parameters, one acts or one does not. An individual joining the counter-collective could boost its capacity on the margin and the counter-collective could get the better of the enemy and no more is required to maintain a minimum of hope as against despair. Success is certainly not certain, and it's quite improbable, but it is possible. Thank you. Thank you very much. We thought also since the speakers were already discussing before you entered in that space that maybe they can first react to one another. You seem to want... Thank you uh, for the amazing presentation. So uh, you know that I'm very much into the assumption that we can still win the climate fight. So I just wanted to preface my question with that because um, I felt that you kind of, in your presentation, did make light of two things... And that is, one, the very real despair that people are feeling when they are confronted with a warming world now, and they know that CO2 that, we emit, that is effective in the climate, in the, in the atmosphere now, was emitted 50 years ago. Methane was maybe sort of emitted six or 12 years ago. That, I think, cannot just be countered with references to historic struggles for democracy or against slavery or for women's rights or for queer rights. Because there is a difference, of course. Like humans... You know, it's like what Chumbawamba say. We get knocked down, but we get up again. Um, die letzte Schlacht gewinnen wir. The arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. Um, Marx, Hegel, Kant, etc. So from Chumbawamba all the way to Immanuel Kant, there is an assumption that towards the end we will win. But the time of ecological change is different. It actually points downward. The longer we wait, the shittier it gets. And so conceivably you could say, yes, the struggle against slavery was winnable, but... I think we need some kind of discursive reflections that this is a different struggle. Because when an eco-social system like the global climate system is a complex system, it can tip from a stable into an unstable state at a point at a tipping point that we don't know. And it seems to me that our discourses as sort of left and 
eco-social activists need to reflect that, need to reflect that this is a different struggle, that we don't have the luxury that we used to have of essentially just saying, if we lose this struggle, the next generation or the next generation or the next generation will win it. Okay, thanks. Well, of course, I agree with everything that you said. And if, if I made light of uh, despair, that was not my intention because I really consider it an eminently rational and justified emotional response to the situation. And I personally struggle with it every day. Not least when you have kids and you know what, what future they can expect. And everything seems to get worse all the time and at a quite rapid pace, including political development. My intention was not to make light of that sentiment, but, I mean, loads of people in history have despaired about their situation, but some of them had chosen to fight nonetheless, and that's because they've also had other emotions, notably anger. And in the scientific discussion about what emotions are most conducive to political action, it's quite clear, and, and this, this concerns specifically climate action, that anger or rage is the emotion that is most conducive to action. Uh, this, is, this is the emotional source that we need to draw on. Now, that said, I, I fully take your point that the temporality of this crisis is radically different from slavery or, or the civil rights struggle or almost any other struggle that we've known of in history where the fundamental mode of temporality has been exasperation, like we've had enough of this shit. We can't take it any longer, so we're going to rise up. Here, the temporality is the reverse. It's a kind of a projection that is dominating. We know that the worst is yet to come. It's not behind us. Andrea, do you want to react? Yeah, thanks for this talk. Actually, I'm a bit surprised that disagreement comes so quickly in this discussion. But I have to admit that I disagree. I don't want to be put in a situation, in a dichotomy between rage, anger on the one hand, and on the other hand, fatalism and not action. Because I think this kind of dichotomic thinking and this kind of fetishization of rage and anger does not lead us to any desirable future. But I think, yes, we need sometimes rage, but we need to focus on where does rage come from. And rage comes from love, and rage comes from the acknowledgement of beauty, I think. And yes, I think you can sit there in a meditation, and from this meditation comes the rage and the, comes the possibility to stand what has to be done. I mean, there's a lot of people like, for example, Thich Nhat Hanh in the Vietnam War and other um, Buddhist movements and whatever. I mean, a lot of people who have done that. And I think that to link meditation and inner transformation to fatalism and non-action That is a dichotomy that really has been a big problem in the left thinking of the last 40 years, which does not lead us to what we need now. We need to act out of hope. So, yes, I do agree with a lot of things you said, but I do not agree with the narrative you make out of this, I think. Yeah. My intention was not to denigrate meditation as such. It is Scranton who proposes it as an alternative to action. I'm nothing against meditation. That was not my point. I disagree with what you said because I really don't feel that I 
have made the decisions that our economies should become more dependent on fossil fuels. I'm not the one making those investment decisions. I don't think you are the one making them either. I don't think anyone in this room is actively participating in the decisions that lock us ever deeper into fossil fuel dependence. We are rather locked into a system that is a deeply stratified and extremely unequal system. Yes, we are consumers, but uh, that doesn't mean that the distribution of power over how the society develops is evenly spread. Naomi Klein has made the great point that you could have said that anyone in Europe who consumed sugar and coffee and tobacco from the slave plantations were, you know, part of the problem because their lifestyles were built on actually consuming things produced by slaves. But when the anti-slavery movement in Europe took off in solidarity with the slaves, the movement targeted the masters, the ones who profited from slavery, because they were the ones maintaining the system. So the point was not to attack the, the individual consumers, even though you could have boycott campaigns and things like that, but to actually get rid of the master class. And I think it's the similar, uh, similar situation today. I fundamentally think that the corporations and the politicians that make those decisions about expanding coal in Germany, they are the ones that need to be targeted. The time has come for the climate movement to consider one form of violence, and that is property destruction and sabotage. So I'm not advocating violence against people, because that is a very important distinction, and I think it's very important for the climate movement to stick to the taboo against violence against people. But I think we should break with the taboo of violence against things. I think it is time to start breaking things. That's the argument I made. Okay, so um, I think it's super interesting. We talk about militancy from the first 10 minutes and we would like to continue with Andrea who I think has something to suggest concerning this imagination. The one is how, what is the means to get there but also how do we imagine where we want to get. And Andrea will talk about degrowth as an imaginable future. Yeah, thank you very much. So it's like uh, in the most times in history it was, the men are talking about rage and the women are talking about desire. <clears throat> I will continue with that tradition and I will talk about degrowth. And my perspective is the question, where lies utopia? How can we trust our desire for a good life for all How can we take serious this desire and follow it? What can we do now on an individual, but of course even more important on a collective and of course on a political level? I first want to explain the term degrowth and then I want to come to some examples to explain better what I mean by it. So degrowth, funny term, to grow backwards. What does that mean? It means to tackle the ecological crisis in a way that we need to develop a whole new way of living, a new model of economy and society which does not need economic growth. Why do we need this? Because I think nearly all thinking persons on this planet agree that we need to reduce our consumption of materials and goods, emissions of carbon dioxide and so on. We all 
saw these, all these curves up here. Um, but then the agreement ends because the most known position is the capitalist position, one could say, also the eco-modernist position it is framed, that we can end this consummation and that we can end these emissions by something called green growth. And green growth has the assumption that we can make money and that the growth curve goes up and at the same time the curves of material consumption and so on go down. And this one is going up and the other is going down. This is called decoupling. So we can decouple these curves from each other. And advocates for degrowth, like me, they say this is just not possible. And why? So I give you three small arguments. The first one is there's a lot of people who say, yeah, but there is some decoupling occurring in Germany if you look at these curves. And yes, there is. And why is this so? It is because in Germany, the dirty industries They are gone now to India and China where there is the steel produced, for example, and other things. So, of course, you can do some trick by externalization of your industries. And second, to achieve this decoupling, it is said you can achieve that by technological innovation and by more efficient technologies. But to really achieve that in a time needed for, for example, reaching this 1.5 degree goal, there would be such a big, big technological efficiency rise needed that this has just never been seen in all of history to innovate so quickly. And even if it would be possible, which is very improbable, and we already heard from Andreas Malm that you should think the improbable, but even if it would be possible to reach these efficiency rates, there would be a lot of rebound effects. So it is known over 100 years now that whenever you have more efficient technologies, people tend to use them more. So you could, for example, watch that in the Christmas decoration last year. So since the LED lamps arrived, people decorate more. Maybe you saw this in your neighborhood also, I did. And considering this, there is, I admit, a very, very small chance that we can decouple. But it is so small that this position is just an irrational form of wishful thinking. It's a position of a moral hazard. And therefore, to say, no, we don't believe in this very, very small chance is just a more rational position to say, okay, then... We need a degrowth economy. And what does it mean? Andreas Malm wrote about that a lot. A degrowth economy in a capitalist economy means a recession. And what that means, you could see, for example, the last 10 years in Greece. It's not a very desirable option. So a degrowth society that is desirable would mean a post-capitalist society and economy. But there's some good news in that because uh, the growth economy isn't the best economy ever anyways. If you want to read that in detail, you can look it up in our book where we did sum up what other intelligent people wrote about it. Um, I would just have some very short arguments. 
So growth economy tends to be very unfair regarding social distribution from a certain point on. Growth economy is based on a sexist production mode that devalues structurally unpaid care work in households and gardens and is mostly done by women and or immigrants. And it is based on a racist production mode that needs colonized or dependent countries where labor is cheap and where raw materials can be extracted. And this growth economy is based on an anthropocentric production mode, constantly devaluates and disregards natural processes and living beings. So I would say we are ready for a new economy centered around care work, not wage work, and around responsibility for all living beings. An economy and society that acknowledges the fundamental interdependence of all beings on this planet. Central pillars for such a new economy would be global ecological justice, social justice, and the right to live a good and meaningful life, and of course, the building up of growth-independent institutions and infrastructures. This is all very abstract, and the question is, what could that possibly mean in practical terms? I will try to give you some examples. As you might know, the company Tesla wants to build a very big factory in Brandenburg to build electric SUVs. So um, as people concerned with the environment, shouldn't we like this company building electric SUVs? I think it is a good example to explain what a degrowth society would mean instead of Tesla's factory. So it would mean to not build a factory at a place where there was a forest and to not build a factory in a region where it is very dry and where the factory needs really a lot of water and to drill a lot of new wells where it is absolutely not clear where this water should come from, especially in the global warming where it's even getting drier every year in Brandenburg, as some of you might have noticed. So the degrowth option would mean not additional factories, but a conversion of the existing ones. Why don't build electric devices, for example, in Wolfsburg or in Munich, where there is already big factories? The degrowth perspective would say we don't need all these new technologies in addition to the old ones, but we need to stop the old ones and to convert them. And of course, we don't want to build SUVs, but we want to build electric buses or trains or bikes. So it's about changing the whole transport infrastructure and the whole mobility system. So a degrowth option would say we don't need any hierarchical enterprises and multinationals anymore, but we need worker-owned collectives. We need some factories that are regional. We don't need subsidies like now and big money that is given to this factory, but We need state money, which is subsidies are state money at the end, for local social and solidaric enterprises and cooperatives. And we need to change the frameworks for these enterprises to be able to grow. Yes, because there will be growth in a degrowth society. There needs to be growth of, for example, solidaric and social cooperatives. And also... As you might know, Tesla is not a big fan of trade unions and uh, there will be a lot of jobs coming for male workers working there eight or maybe 12 hours in a shift system. But in a degrowth society, we would need 
a job regime if we need wage work at all that is oriented on the way women work for a long time. That means part-time work, that that what is now called part-time work will be the normal for everybody so that also the unpaid work and all the care work can be equally distributed. To expand a bit further from Berlin, Brandenburg to another region, we can, as an example, also look at the Lausitz region um, where the lignite mining plants will be shut down too late, far too late. But um, even now there's going on a discussion about what happens to this region when the lignite mine will shut down. And I think that there would be a chance that this region could really have a social and ecological transformation But it will not, because when I read the newspapers, then the newspapers say, oh yes, there is 20,000 industrial workplaces and we have to replace them with other industries that are nearly as polluting as the one that is there. So why don't take a chance and maybe experiment in a region with a basic income that people can really develop new ways of provisioning? A degrowth society would be one where there is a good health system affordable for everybody and where people would not fear that their industrial workplace would go away. We could experiment with the regeneration of a landscape with agroecology in the Lausitz to recover from these horrors of extractivism. And I have a third example. So the Association of German Architects published last year a very remarkable thesis paper. They said, and remember they are architects, that taking the ecological crisis and degrowth seriously would mean not to build any new buildings anymore. I think this is very remarkable. So what means degrowth then in contrast to ecological modernization? It means to reuse the old, to restructure the old buildings, to renovate them so that they are no more fossil dependent. They become more convivial. In the same time, a degrowth city would be the opposite of, for example, a smart city. It would be a convivial city with short distances between different fields to act, with the possibility to use autonomous and free internet on refurbished computer stations, with free public transport and bike lanes everywhere, with children, grown-ups and elderly people learning, chatting, working on the streets. I think Degrowth is an interesting intellectual project because it addresses the imperial living mode of most people in the global north and some elites in the global south. And I think, isn't it everybody um, that is acting out this imperial mode of living now? Or is it the elites? This was a discussion before. And I mean, to some point, it's both. And the idea of degrowth is basically to say, yes, we have to deprivilege our mode of living and to ask questions about that, and to think about how could another society and a mode of living look like. Maybe some final remark. I think degrowth is not some sort of fundamentalistic new ideology. I think it's a certain perspective that needs to find strategic alliances with others nearby. Like, for example, also a Green New Deal um, in a version of Bernie Sanders. I think... To come back to this question, is there any hope? I mean, of course, is there any hope? And also small steps might not seem very revolutionary at the first glance, but they can save real lives. And I think this is the ethical question it comes down to. Do we also accept measurements that maybe now don't seem to be in alignment with our radical vision 
but that help to save lives now at this very moment. I think degrowth is a project of conversion, not of building anything anew. And I consider this really a very fundamental philosophical difference because it breaks somehow with the phallocentric story of progress, of destruction, and then building anew. It allows us to ask humble questions like, where do we go from here now, where we stand right now? We have all these piles of toxic technologies. We have all these piles of gender inequalities, of rotten infrastructures, of corrupt institutions. And the question is, how can we converge or transform them? I mean, they won't vanish overnight, make place for a wonderful, eco-friendly, cradle-to-cradle world where our mobile phones are eatable, all materials are zero waste after the revolution. I don't think so. I think we should ask from a decourse perspective with the famous six R's from Serge Latouche. Maybe some of you are um, familiar with his writings, which are not always very cool, but <laughs> he had uh, this nice program very early in the degrowth thinking. And he said we should re-evaluate, restructure, redistribute, reduce, reuse, and recycle. And I would ask with these questions, how can we reuse queer knowledge to build new societies? How can we reduce gender inequalities? How can we restructure our buildings? How can we re-evaluate non-human life forms? How can we redistribute care work? How can we upcycle democratic institutions? Um, I'm looking forward to discuss it. <laughs> Okay, thank you, Andrea, for this very holistic approach to our questions. Two responses to this, and then we open. Andres. I basically agreed with everything you said, except for the very first thing you said, namely that, that rage in general and, and climate rage in particular would be some kind of male thing. Well, if you look at Greta Thunberg, what drives her emotionally is quite clearly anger. Donald Trump tweeted some time back that she has an anger management problem. Well, thanks God she has an anger management problem, because otherwise she would just be home crying, and so would I. And anger has been as important for the feminist movement as for any other social movement, so I don't see that it would be some kind of a masculinist thing to be angry. I think that's a very universal human emotion that goes as much for women as for men, uh, if not more for women, uh, for good reasons. If we, if, we, if we consider some forms of violence, it would be what some researchers call unarmed collective violence. And that's the kind of violence that, that you've seen in many places last year. You know, 2019 was a year of social uprisings across the world. Haiti, Ecuador, Chile, France, Lebanon, Iraq, and so on and so forth. And in every single one of these uprisings, you had elements of unarmed collective violence. So that is people destroying things, setting things on fire, fighting with cops when necessary, and stuff like that. The only movement that mobilized in 2019 on a large scale that never engaged in unarmed collective violence was the climate movement. Because it sticks to an extremely narrow, pacifist line. And I find that problematic. I don't know why our movement should be the most gentle history has ever seen. Yeah, as somebody who I think was involved in kind of building Endigeland, I, I believe that our commitment to nonviolence is so thin and strategic that we are definitely capable of potentially doing something else. I just wanted to say that, that we're not part of an ideological commitment to this type of pacifism. And I find it quite irritating that as soon as folks talk about breaking shit, 
you invoke some kind of civil war. Can we just stick to like what words mean and not create this threat of a climate civil war here just because Andreas talked about breaking some stuff, which seems to me a very sensible strategic and tactical position. Right. Um, not that I'm calling for it. I'm just saying. Okay, but... Um, Andrea, so thank you for outlining the degrowth perspective. I felt that there was one thing that I would like you to expand a bit more on. A bit more on. On the moronic position of green growth. So could you expand more on the moronic position of green growth, green capitalism strategies? So could you just could you really elaborate a little bit on why we need degrowth, why green growth strategies aren't going to be effective beyond the obvious idiocy of building three-ton Uh, electric SUVs, so just on a conceptual level, because I feel that would otherwise get lost. And it's also an important defense that folks have against their relatives and friends who are going to ask the same thing, which they always do. Yes. Uh, maybe, Andrea, you want to uh, respond? What I think would be an interesting question to respond to would be how degrowth and capitalism would be able to connect. So maybe you want to react? Yeah. As I said before, I think degrowth is two things. I think degrowth is a perspective and um, a degrowth society is also an utopian idea of how society with a good life all could look like. In this sense of degrowth as a utopian society, I think it cannot coexist with capitalism somehow. As we have seen When in a capitalist economy there is degrowth, there is recession, I think for a really equal and inclusive society, we would need some other economical organization. I think it would be a lie if I would say, oh, wow, we have these very cool strategic plans in our pockets and now it's just time to pull it out and to do these things, I think there lies also a big power in this acknowledging of we are in this mess and we don't know exactly how to get out there. I mean, we know some steps we can take now. I mean, we can go to some Ende Gelände protests and this will be surely a good thing. And it's not wrong. We can make a lot of projects that follow a different logic, for example, collective economy project or housing projects, small niches, and try out some things and network them. And we can do this now. And I recommend very highly to you to do this in order to stay sane in this society. But I don't think that at the historical point we are now, we have the big plan, how we go out there. Yes. Can I ask you something? Or maybe also um, the two of you. I have a question concerning the trilogy Growth, Fossil Energy and Capitalism. I think it's really important to understand why capitalism and fossil energy are so strictly bound together. This is my question. Are they bound? Because if they're not bound, I have to say, then we could have capitalism and renewable energies. Then there is no contradiction to that. And then how does this relate to growth? Can we have a capitalism that is not growing? 
if it, this is possible, then we might have also other options. Because, to make the devil's advocate here, it is easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. But, but maybe yeah, the fossil capitalism... Oh, okay, yeah, the fossil capital argument you, you're asking me to make is probably the historical argument that I outlined in a book by that name, which is that it wasn't humanity in general that came up with large-scale fossil fuel combustion, but it was... A capitalist economy located in one country, the United Kingdom, and it was the capitalist class in that country, a very small segment of the total human species, that developed this way of, of using energy. And it did that not because they were cheaper than traditional alternative energy sources, water, power, primarily, nor because they were more abundant or anything, but because they... It could be used at anywhere capital like to locate its production and because they could be used at any point in time. So they allowed for the production of abstract space and abstract time, which fit the logic of capital. Now, this is to compress a complex argument. But on the more immediate question, can we imagine a capitalism that does not destroy the climate? Or would um, a society that allows for climate stabilization by definition be non-capitalist? My response to this would be that we really don't know. What we know for certainty is that one line of capital accumulation, namely the one that I spoke about earlier, the one that profits from the production of fossil fuels, has to be terminated as a whole. So that fraction of the capitalist class, if you like, faces an existential crisis. It knows that its very existence is at stake. So ExxonMobil and BP and all of these parts of capital will have to cease to exist as a branch of accumulation where you make profit from fossil fuels. And that's why they have always, from the very beginning, from the earliest days of climate science, when climate became a, a political question, been the most aggressive in sabotaging every effort at mitigation. As for other kinds of capital... What they face is more of a structural crisis in the sense that, at least hypothetically, you can run a car factory on renewable electricity and you can produce electrical cars and things like that and possibly do that without fossil fuels, potentially. It's not an existential crisis in that absolute axiomatic sense as it is for the line of capital that produces fossil fuels. So this opens up at least for the uh, hypothetical scenario where you could have some kind of capital accumulation continue based on renewable energy. Would that be a, a capitalism without growth? I don't see capitalism without growth being a possibility. I think capitalism has to grow by definition. The problem is that because we have waited so long with starting the actual process of cutting emissions, I mean, it's still nowhere in the cards, when, or if rather, that ever happens, the timeline will be such that not only will what we call the fossil fuel industry have to be liquidated wholesale, but other branches of capital will have to be transformed so rapidly and so swiftly that that probably implies some kind of public control over these sectors of capital. When we speak about Green New Deal and things like that, unfortunately we had this political disaster of the election in Britain because the Labour Manifesto contained the most advanced climate program that I have seen any party in an advanced capitalist country submit for an election. These demands included things like, we're going to 
kick out corporations from the stock exchange if they don't comply with our emissions reductions. You know, serious interventions into private property rights. And that is probably what it's going to take if we're going to ever have a transition. Uh, and this might very well start a dynamic that leads beyond capitalism. But this, we don't know this. I don't think we know uh, on a logical basis wh whether capitalism could possibly again revert to a non-fossile phase. From the beginning, capitalism was non-fossile. Then it developed into fossil capital. Yeah. But that, that would be my short response to another complicated and big question. Thank you. Okay, there is no capitalism without growth. Dagio, do you want to uh, make your contribution? Yeah, so um, I've been having these discussions for a long time, and the question really is, how the fuck do we win? Um, because it's very important, just one thing, if we talk about ecological collapse, which both of you did, both of you neglected to mention one particular dimension that I find very, very important, which is the justice dimension. There's a widespread sense that if an ecological collapse were to happen, particularly among folks like your Scranton or, or the Dark Mountain folks, or any of those white northern twits who say, oh yeah, let's all die, which is fucked up because I think probably most people in this room know that the people who would die first from ecological collapse are, of course, the folks who have contributed least to it. Folks in the global south, folks with a small carbon footprint, etc., and so forth, and therefore white northerners saying, ah, yeah, it's fine, we're all just going to die, it's some cosmic divine judgment on a, how fucked up we've been. That is racist claptrap and shite and should be shut down as soon as it is even articulated. I get very, very annoyed with this. If people say, let's all, like, die, you're like, yeah, you're not going to die first, you fucker. Which means that taking that position is actually accepting other people's death on account of our mode of production and lifestyle, which is just not on. That's just unethical in the extreme. And it's actually a kind of thinly disguised exterminatory racism Okay, sorry about that excursion. So briefly, I want to talk a bit about climate change, um, how it's very, very urgent, and how we're going to have to do something, and then what might be done. Um, the last 10 to 12,000 years of what we pretend uh, have been human civilization happened in the so-called Holocene, which was a period of climatic stability where the average temperature didn't diverge more than two degrees from the mean. That is actually the meaning of that two degrees limit you may have heard of. Essentially, it's like this. The global climate system is a complex system. Complex systems have stable and unstable states. And if a complex system leaves a stable state, there is no way of telling what will happen, how long it will stay in an unstable state. You have no fucking idea what happens beyond a stable state. Now, it was kind of lucky that we had this Holocene this period of unusual climatic stability, because it allows for things like sedentary agriculture. You can actually say, let's live here, and we're going to plant, I think, in the spring and reap... You sow in the spring and, and reap in the autumn. I don't know, I'm very urban, but, you know. Before we had the 1.5 degrees limit, there was the 2 degrees limit, and that meant, at least that was the idea, that beyond 2 degrees average global warming, the likelihood of the global climate system tipping from a stable into an unstable state rises beyond 50%. Just to clarify, that's like playing Russian roulette with one bullet and two chambers. You know, nobody would get into a plane if you said, that's got a 50% chance of crashing. That's what we're talking about. Essentially, if the global climate system changes to an unstable state, you don't know if you can do sedentary agriculture in the world, when to reap, when to sow, 
um, which would be a complete fucking disaster, and again, loads and loads and loads of people would die, and honestly, that would create social chaos on a scale that we haven't yet. If you think of the ravages of history, the global climate system tipping into an unstable state would create a completely new type of global fuckery uh, uh, and chaos. Yeah, no, I also like to swear, partly because it makes me seem cool, um, and there are like, there's studies that show people take you more seriously when you swear. Okay, so currently we've got 1 to 1.1 to 1.4 degrees warming already baked into the system, and potential of climate collapse is real. I think we're all clear on the fact that there is no emissions reductions trend. You said we started the process of reducing emissions far too late. There is no process of reducing emissions. If anybody tells you that there is such a thing as climate policy, global, European, or German, you can always tell them, yeah, but that policy field, unlike any others, doesn't affect the climate at all. You know, all sorts of policies affect the climate, mostly in negative ways. The climate policy field is unusual in that it doesn't affect the climate at all because it's just a pile of bullshit. Now, again, this sounds polemical, but it's actually true. If you look at the global level, 25 years of UN climate summits have correlated with no emissions reductions whatsoever. If you look at the correlation of global emissions over the last 25 years, the moments when they actually dip have to do with reductions in global economic growth. They have nothing to do with any conscious climate policy formulated at the global level. I'm saying that nobody is doing anything about protecting the climate, about fighting climate injustice. Not nobody, but not the actors that we traditionally associate with that role. Governments, institutions, big corporations. Nobody. I could go on explaining to you how little is happening. It's, it's, it's quite baffling how little is happening, by the way. But the important question is who will do something about it? Traditionally, the left has conceptualized struggles in which we are the majority in some way. Those of us struggling against some injustice are the majority. The workers' movement said we're the majority in society, not the capitalists. The women's movement said we're actually the majority in society, not, um, not the rich men that we're fighting. Now, in this particular case, and here I'm going to sort of connect a little bit with what you said, we are locked into decisions here that capitalists have taken. Yes, but capitalism has also sort of attached itself to our desires, to our sort of want for material consumption, which means that you actually have a majority of people in the global north who, when faced with the option of saying, well, do you want to continue this lifestyle and mode of production, or another one that uh, protects folks in the global south, folks will, by the, by, as a majority, say, no, we want to continue our mode of living. And that's very important that we understand that and accept that and take it seriously, and not to say these people are ideologically fucked up. No, they're taking quite rational decisions based on their material interest, and their material interest, by and large, in the global north is to continue this way of living. And so when Endegelende and Hambi Bleibt and other actors have taken action against the coal sector, we've always ended up being quite a small minority. What was the largest Endegelende action? 6.5, you know, 6,500. Hambi, biggest demonstration, 50,000. Until recently, we had this idea that we're going to just, like in the anti-nuclear movement, we're going to be a small cadre of activists, maybe a few thousand people who take spectacular actions, and all of the rest of society can look at us, how cool we are, and then we're going to force the government to change policy. Now, I don't know if you've been paying attention to the debate about the coal phase-out. That strategy has failed spectacularly, and I say this as somebody who co-designed that strategy for the anti-coal movement. We have failed spectacularly. At one point, 50% of all AFD supporters wanted a more rapid coal phase-out. So you can even be a proto-fascist asshole and still want a more rapid coal phase-out. And you're still not going to get it, because the set of economic interests aligned against it, coal companies, but also trade unions working in the sector, is so powerful to prevent anything from happening. This is what Fridays for Future has shown us in the last, I'm going to say, year. 
there's now a call to say, okay, so there is this task that we have to do. We have to protect the climate, A. B, governments and corporations aren't doing it. And C, if small activist movements try to change public opinion, thus influence policy, they fail. Because what did the Coal Commission tell us? Germany, one of the richest countries in the world, will get out one of the dirtiest fossil fuels in 20 years. Brandenburg is burning in fucking late April. Northern Germany shouldn't burn in late April. That's just wrong. And still, we're going to get out in 20 years from now. So the first thing we have to ask is, how do we actually get a majority of society involved in this struggle? So two points. A, we need to find a way to generalize this struggle away from the small radical minority. And I think Fridays for Future showed us the way on the 20th of September. We were 1.4 million people. We're in a way the unteilbar subject, that diverse progressive subject made of migrants, workers, queers, sex workers, etc., all sorts of cool people. That's the unteilbar subject. That that subject gathers behind the intensely powerful moral leadership of the young generation of Fridays for Future. This subject that I call Unteilbar for Future is, I believe, the social subject that can win this struggle and even turn Brandenburg around, which is kind of hard. Uh, secondly, how the fuck are we going to do it just tactically? We need to achieve great material effects in very short time. And the sort of much maligned social movement research clearly shows that movements that do not have allies at the elite level that implement their policies can only win if they generate widespread, large-scale disruption of everyday life. So what am I talking about? I'm talking about the Unteilbar for Future subject engaging in mass shutdowns of everyday life, of production, of transport, of all sorts of things that make this capitalist system tick. Now, that will mean conflict once we start shutting down the car sector. We're going to be facing one of the most powerful progressive organizations in Germany, namely the IG Metall which has put all its money on producing more cars. So this will mean conflict. It'll mean disruptions in the material level of consumptions that we enjoy. So what we also need is a societal story that we tell ourselves, and that's also why I think degrowth comes back in and being so important, about how life can be better even though we shut shit down all the time. And honestly, if you ask me as a climate activist, and I'll end on this, This is where we need to get to. We need to develop the ability to mobilize social majorities, which means hundreds of thousands doing massive disobedience, and we need to develop the ability to strike at targets around the country, shut them down for days in a row, to show the elites that are locking us into these decisions that we mean business, and if they're not going to save our future, we fucking will. Thank you. We would like to give Andrea and Andreas the possibility to maybe react on some questions. I have as a question the individual regulations about individual freedoms. I have the question about building other kinds of governance structures, which also came here. I have the question of how do we integrate the professionals or strategic questions. Is there something you want to react to, Andrea or Andreas? Yeah, I mean, I mean, there are. So, I mean, we could go on and and discuss throughout the night. I'm sure because there are so many questions, and I, I realize that by throwing out this idea of blowing up a power plant and, and things like that, you would probably go home by thinking that what I mean is that the panacea, the solution, is to go out and smash things. That's not really my argument. I mean, we've been fighting for some time now, non-violently, and since we're facing this very unique temporality, I think we have reached a stage where we need to ask, should we consider our options, and should we also perhaps 
do things like, for instance, Jessica Reznicek and Ruby Montoya, the two Catholic workers activists, who got so exasperated with the decision that the Dakota Access Pipeline would be built, regardless of all the nonviolent mobilization, that they actually started to go out and destroy the infrastructure. They learned how to do it, and they went for months up and down the line of the Dakota Access Pipeline, blowing it up and setting things on fire. And they did this as Catholic workers. So for them, it falls under the headline of nonviolence because they have a particular tradition of conceiving of this kind of stuff as nonviolence. Other people would see it as violence. I would see it as very intelligent sabotage. The problem was that they were two individuals who did this. And they managed to postpone the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline for a number of months. Imagine if they had been 200. Or imagine if they had been 2,000. Intelligent sabotage of this kind can be explained to the masses as a legitimate tactic at this particular moment in time. Imagine if someone in Australia during this bushfire crisis had gone into a coal-fired power plant or a mine and destroyed some infrastructure. I don't think it would have been impossible to explain that as a justified action at this particular moment in time. To the contrary, I think that would have allowed for another kind of political imagination. It would have broken the fundamental limit that says that this kind of property is sacrosanct, is sacred. We can never take this property down. But this is exactly the property that has to be taken down. And someone needs to start doing it. And Taji, who's done more work on this than anyone I know, is perfectly right. We need to start shutting these things down. And we can do it nonviolently, or we can do it with property destruction. But we have to do it. Okay. Andrea. Oh, wow. Okay. I totally agree in it's urgent to shut things down. And I want to add something that is connected to two questions, I think, to how to involve professional classes, and what about taxation? I think in addition to shutting things down, which might be priority number one, there is also priority number two to, to build up new forms of living together. And for professionals, I made, for example, very good experiences personally because I'm working on convivial technologies, like the question, which kind of technology do we need for post-growth societies like material technologies and infrastructures. And a lot of engineers, they are very open to that question because they really hate it in their everyday work life to construct shit because the managers say, wow, but you have to do this because of our profit thing, you know? I think there's a lot, a lot of people who want to do good things, um, especially on this middle level, and I think we can convince them to go with us um, some points and to help alternative projects of course it would be so important to have a different taxation law because at the moment taxation and subsidies they are so much in favor of fossil energies of big corporations and so on and this is a scandal and this has to change and this will change a lot if we would have another taxation system I'm not sure if I want to use the term restraining individual liberties but more like expanding equal rights, I would say. Because at the very moment where somebody is flying around the planet 20 times a year, he's not executing his own personal liberties, but he's, to use Tajo's words, shitting on the liberties of other people um, because he's taking their liberties to have a right livelihood away from them. And so I think we have to turn these questions around and ask what can we do to 
expand and to extend the liberties of everybody to have equal rights for a good life on this planet. Thank you. It's a very nice final contribution. You stayed also long. What I uh, what I feel is that there is an urgency and there is a need for all of us to be here in this heterogeneous mix of people to talk about these things. Thank you for being here. Thank you for staying for so long. Thank you to the speakers. Have a nice evening. You have just listened to the second edition of the podcast Burning Futures on Ecologies of Existence, focusing on the subject of fossil energy degrowth economies and strategies for the future. The next event will take place on the 29th of March. Thank you for listening. Futures.